Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to another episode of Atomic Robo Nuts and Bolts. I'm Cap. I'm Brian, and I'm still laughing at the fact that we call it Nuts and Bolts. <laughs> I'm Scott, and I'm an adult. I don't find that funny at all. <laughs> Atomic Robo Nuts and Bolts is the Atomic Robo behind-the-scenes podcast. Think of it as a issue-by-issue commentary for the Atomic Robo comic series. If you haven't read Atomic Robo, you totally should. It's about a robot built by Nikola Tesla fighting things throughout history. He doesn't get old, whatever. Deal with it. <laughs> This is issue five of volume seven. So if this is the first one you're tuning in for and you either don't want any spoilers for volume seven or you would like to do this whole thing, then you're going to want to go to the Atomic Robo Nuts and Bolts page over at nerdyshow.com. Right now, we're going to get into this because this is the climactic final issue of the volume and um, some things go down, guys. Bad things happen to good people, yeah. Explosions happen. Always explosions. Love explosions. Can I just say, I think maybe we should change our, um, there's always like a front cover explanation of, you know, what's going on in this issue or this series. I think I should change it to what Cap just said. Mm-hmm. You fight monsters and things and don't get old, deal with it. <laughs> <laughs> or just deal, just, you know it, just deal with it. That's what it should be. Just deal with it. And it should be like, um, what are those uh, books called where the kids' books, picture books, right, they, like a, little ta- a little tab you pull and yeah. like there's a, like the things move and there should just be deal with it in a picture of Robo and you pull the tab sunglasses fall down over his eyes <laughs> but then they keep going because he has no nose or ears right <laughs> <laughs> you guys are going to start getting requests for the atomic robo pop-up book it would be pretty sweet i mean think about you both you crack open the page and just this big explosion shows up in your <laughs> face i mean that has atomic robo written all over it mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> so speaking of explosions this issue once again starts in the middle of a serious fight Coming off of last issue, just to refresh everybody, if you're listening to these in real time as they come out, what's just happened is uh, a secret Japanese force after World War II has attacked San Francisco. They want to drop an earthquake bomb and screw up the fault lines and cause a mass calamity that America is not prepared for. I got to say that using the earthquake weapons, um, while interesting, was really uh, a bad idea. Really? <laughs> Specific- only because... Uh, we hadn't quite figured out plate tectonics yet, so I had to kind of write around that gap of knowledge. Yeah, yeah, that was <laughs> like the, um, that was the '60s and '70s when that was. Yeah, that's when they really solidified it. Like they had. Right. I was talking to Phil about this. He's our like science advisor guy. He is. A, what's yeah. his, what's his what's his technical job? Nuclear safety. I don't know. He does. He's plays with atoms. Person. It's. It doesn't um, sound safe. <laughs> it's totally safe, as he's. You know, explained. I think it's literally uh, Homer Simpson's job. He's like a safety. Dude, like uh-huh. he, he's the guy who watches the canary in the cage so that when the nukes are leaking, it dies. And he's like, okay. Right. It's more uh-huh. t- technical than that, though. Slightly. <laughs> that's that's 
pretty interesting about the plate tectonics thing. It hadn't crossed my mind at all when that science would have yeah, first, like, or like that I, common knowledge even. Right. Yeah, well, exactly. The, like the I was thinking that it was that it was earlier in the 20th century when we you know had figured it out. But apparently, we knew basically what was happening. You know why there are earthquakes. There are, you know there's movement and so on. But we didn't know why. There wasn't a cohesive picture of what exactly was going on. So I had to be a bit selective about you know today, as you were saying, Cap. It's just totally common knowledge. Right. which is really useful for a sci-fi comic to be able to drop just really quick terms that everyone's familiar with that can act as exposition, but very quickly. You know, you can just get in and out of it because it sounds natural that these characters would be using these terms instead of, as you know, right. <laughs> we didn't have that here because they they didn't know plate tectonics. So I still had to right. talk about an earthquake weapon and how it would plausibly uh, have the enemy know, you know, why to deploy it on a fault line and why that would worry, you know, other people, even though nobody knows exactly why? So I would just like to throw in for historical purposes that the guy who came up with plate tectonics theory was a Big deal. Robert Robert Wegener, distant ancestor of mine, maybe. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> couldn't confirm that anyway, but spelled the same way. Uh, and they all thought he was crazy. And it wasn't until they started mapping the seafloor in the 50s and 60s looking for oil that they had enough evidence and proof to uh, confirm that it was actually the way things happened. Geez, if that guy was crazy, maybe there is a hollow earth, or it's flat and not a sphere. Or both. It's expanding. Oh, it's, a, it's, it's expanding. It's get, a get, hollow, get expanding disk. <laughs> the donut. <laughs> We're baking in the oven of the universe and slowly <laughs> rising. <laughs> oh, if anyone, though, would like to uh, check out Science Guy Phil's other project, they could go to Funranium Labs. I'll, I'll give you a link to put in the... It'll be on this episode's page. Funranium I, Labs. It's delicious. I just got my, my latest shipment of the black blood of the earth from, uh, from Funranium, which is like super caffeinated. You mean oil? No, 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 no. It's, it's a triple cold distilled coffee. So it's got like, I, uh, it's got like 12 yeah. times the amount of caffeine as a regular cup of coffee. I, I tell you what, that's got Christmas present written on all over it, man. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Yeah. I'm supposed to, at some point, I'm supposed to do an atomic robo label for him to use. Oh, <laughs> that is rad. Yeah. <laughs> it's good stuff. Uh, you have to develop a taste for it, like any kind of intense drink. But uh, I have found it is perfect with a, a bit of Kahlua and uh, as like a shot in a regular cup of coffee that I brew myself. But it's a downer and an upper in the same cup. And like you can, like, you can clearly see the strings of the universe pulling things once you have a couple of those. Sounds like a powerful potion poison. Oh, yes. <laughs> Literally nearly killed himself the first time he had The some. first time, yes. Yeah. I was doing two books at once. That's why. This is way off topic. Yeah, I think way. that was volume five. It's and I was doing though. volume five and the Avengers miniseries for Nate. And they were all due at the same time. And I was moving from New Hampshire to New York. And uh, yeah, there was lots of, you know, 12, 14 hour days. And I just had the bottle next to my desk and we just take slugs of it as necessary uh, until I got really nauseous and my hands were shaking too much to draw and then I stopped <laughs> and then I didn't drink it for a while <laughs> for some reason I don't know why <laughs> all right so robo has got a jetpack yes <laughs> he's got a jetpack he's chasing after the bad guy they're talking back and forth and this is where because I, when I read these issues now uh, since we do the show I have to overanalyze everything which is mm -hmm. not as much fun as you think it would be. Uh, so There's then I, I asked myself, they got little little uh, triangles on their word balloons. They're all talking via communicator. Otherwise, how the hell could they hear each other? What are they talking into, guys? Shut up, Cap. <laughs> <laughs> Read the comic and like it. Yeah. <laughs> I, uh, I, I had that thought myself, you know, a couple pages into doing, oh, a couple issues ago. And I just decided that having big old headsets would 
obscure their faces too much. And, yeah, when I was uh, writing it, you know, it's just easy to imagine. Oh, they've got flight helmets on, and somehow magically we know who is who in in these scenes. Which, right. you, which no, you can't. You cannot tell. So whatever. Yeah, and a lot of them do have. Most of them have helmets. A lot on, of them so do. You know what it could be? So you, you just cap. It's it's uh, throat mics. They're using World War II bomber throat mics. That I, I I'm into that, man. Thank you. There you go. Thank you for okay. fixing this. And skull phones. Some of them have cyberpunk skull phones, but yeah. that would in, take In Robo's world, like 30% of the population has a skull phone like <laughs> mm-hmm. in 1940. It's totally normal. That big problem is solved. Cross that right <laughs> off. Then uh, then we got Robo's got bigger problems. Guy's damn ship turns into a robot. Yeah, what up? That happens, yeah. Teacher, teacher. Um, <laughs> yeah, I love the fact that I, I wrote in the wait where does that happen the choo 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 well that happens in free comic book day 2012 was that free comic book day oh oh right that was a year ago sorry that was future source rex my bad <laughs> um well i had on future source rex i wrote in like the crummy like transformers sound effects by hand and then the letterer just said oh that's what he wants and so he wrote that in <laughs> as the uh, as the actual sound effects of future source rex deploying his uh, cyborg tank body oh, so good. i think actually if, if i recall uh jeff asked me jeff powell our amazing letterer and layout guy uh, asked me, you know, should I keep that in or not? And I was like, definitely keep that in. <laughs> <laughs> that was, yeah, that whole bit was very strange and freaky. But that's a different, that's a different podcast, probably. So yeah, it transforms because Brian writes these big epic bad guy things, mm-hmm. and then I look at it and I say, well, how does Robo fight a, a spaceship or a whatever? You know, it's not very exciting. Yeah. So I'm always trying to think of how can we break that down into a, a more humanoid thing for him to to deal with. Originally, the uh, the bucketheads, the the Japanese mechs, weren't mechs at all. They were just like UFOs, flying saucer kind of things. And then Takeshi, I, I, to make his stand out as like the officer ship, has that that bulge in the canopy. And then quickly after looking at that, I I was said, oh, this would really make a very cool sort of. Like it's kind of the helmet of a or the, the the body of a uh, what are those things called, Brian? The the SF three they have the worst name ever. Those 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 like steampunk uh, power armor models we're always drooling over. Oh yeah, what the hell are those things? Uh, Gear Krieg? No, Gear Krieg's yeah, like the dumb American name for it, but that's that. not what they are. Um, anyway, there's this there's this model line from the 80s, and it's this, it's this super futuristic, or it's set uh, you know several hundred years in the future, but it's this very kind of World War II analog model line, and the guy who created the, these Japanese models, and then the people who have been customizing them ever since, have created this huge like fictional narrative that goes along with it. Anyway, very awesome designs, very kind of clunky and industrial looking, which I always prefer, and I just said, oh, this would I could probably integrate this somehow into Takeshi's suit. And then I pitched that to Brian and said, you know, this would make a much better boss battle at the end if there was like a person sort of shaped thing for him to grapple with. And it just sort of uh, happened. <laughs> this was a weird issue anyway, script wise. Because it was about uh, 75% blank. Yeah, <laughs> a little bit. Do <laughs> cool I'm... fight scene, go. Yeah. And then the way it was written, there was a lot of places that I was seeing visual trouble with that, that read perfectly well in the script. And so then starting on page two and ending on page 20. <laughs> I call that, call that working with Brian Clinton. <laughs> I just, I just drew and well, no, I did, I did a breakdown and like I, I did, I broke down all the beats and the pace. Cause it, you know, we sat down and said, what has to happen? What are the, what's the, what are the moments we want to capture? And then, you know, roughly what page should that fall on? Uh, and then it was just kind of like me coloring in the blanks. So I'd had like page nine and page six, and then I would just draw towards each other basically until hopefully they met somewhere in the page in the middle of seven and eight, and it all worked out okay. 
Yeah, and I have then, to say, knowing how fractured this specific issue is in terms of how it came together, I cannot believe it, having read it, because it, it does just, it, it looks like we did all this on purpose, linearly, you know, like normal, <laughs> real people who know what they're doing. Yeah, yeah, you guys are really um, kind of destroying the illusion right now. Why do, Why are we recording <laughs> these things? Sorry. <laughs> you guys, we thought we're geniuses or a couple of morons. <laughs> well, no, we're, well, I don't know about geniuses, but... You, but, you but, guys are playing it fast and loose with creativity. We do, yeah. We we keep it we keep it uh we keep it real in the studio in the Tesla Nine Studios. Real I don't know. You're doing that big bird, Mister Rogers ish. <laughs> Imagination, y'all. <laughs> uh, so you guys got to draw a really cool flying robot, and I'm sure that was super gratifying. Uh, well, Scott specifically, super gratifying to draw a robot um, that is flying and looks like all the uh, mechy Japanese things you've been drooling over on all four previous episodes. Yes, yeah. It was been really hard to hold back until the fifth issue to, to kind of let this drop. And it was just kind of like, oh, God, finally. <laughs> um, I really I really could have, even though this is like an 18-page fight, I felt like we could have used like another five or six pages of it happening. But I was pretty happy with the way it worked out. And it was a cool design, and now I'm never going to draw it again. Yay. <laughs> the end. Thank Story you. of my life, the end. Uh, stick it in the RPG book. Yeah, yeah. The only The only problem with playing it fast and loose the way we do is that quite often I will draw myself into a corner where... It, I thought I thought of everything, uh, and then I realized I haven't thought of everything, like the big round bomb, the earthquake bomb, which looked really cool two issues ago when it just kind of got like catapulted out from underneath the bucket head and kind of skipped across the water and blew up She-Devil Island. Like mm-hmm. That was a, visually a really cool... That was really rad. I, I was really happy with that page, um, one of those pages. Uh, that whole sequence kind of worked out. Yeah, I love that. Really well. That's and that's that's another that was another one where like it was not specifically scripted. It was just sort of like Brian had this, you know, here's this cool idea. No, they just dropped a bomb in, in the script. Just me. Yeah, but I mean like none of it comes out of a vacuum, you know, like everything that I end up drawing comes out of the script one way or another. I just see it differently. So then I when I popped the the, the little power armor out of Takeshi's bucket head, he had this giant, stupid round thing on his back, so had to get rid of that uh so hey lo and behold that was just a casing which makes sense because the earthquake bomb was based on visually was based on uh these dam buster bombs that were used during world war ii where it was a round canister of explosive and basically the idea was to take out these uh massive dams in the german industrial uh area in the the ruhr valley i guess where they generated all this electricity that ran the large parts of the, the German war machine. But blowing up a dam is really hard because, you know, at the base, they're 50 feet thick, and you just can't pack that much explosive into a bomb that an airplane could carry. And so long story short, what they did was they figured out how to skip a bomb across the water, like you skip a pebble across a pond, and it bounces into the side of the dam, and you put a spin on it also, like a baseball. Um, because it's spinning, which it just does naturally... Although I believe they had an engine to spool it yeah. up before launching. Because it's spinning, when it drops into the, the water, instead of floating away from the wall, this, the spinning motion of the bomb holds it close against the wall. And then it gets to a certain point, And when it explodes, because it is touching the wall, the relatively small explosive power of the bomb has the millions and millions of tons of water pressure behind it pushing it against the wall. And so it contains the explosion and directs it into the dam that's having a much greater effect and that was why that was sort of the idea with the earthquake bomb 
not originally, this is how I justified it afterwards and figured out how to undo it. And I said, well, if that was just the casing for delivering the bomb and now Takeshi is the bomb, he doesn't need that anymore. So we'll just expose the raw, awful, radioactive MacGuffin of the earthquake bomb and, and sort of integrate it into his suit this time. And then maybe he's powering the whole suit. Perhaps it was. And then you get the little, little Olympic flame over his head. So yeah, there's a lot of justifying and re-explaining and reinventing things as we go. Hey, as, but it also, as long but as you guys have an explanation, that's all that matters. Yeah, and Sooner that explanation later. makes perfect sense Yes, within the context of a story about a robot and flying power armors and super subs. Yeah, <laughs> the earthquake bomb is probably the least the unbelievable least. thing. <laughs> yeah, probably. On page six, things uh, yeah. really get heavy. So far, this volume has been... Uh, a lot of fun, a interesting, intricate, historical adventure in the Pacific Rim um, with some lovable characters. And uh, you guys set everybody up for a pretty big fall because this this issue is more than a little heartbreaking. A little bit. On page six, uh, Ronnie and Liz take some fire and uh, Ronnie goes down. And then on page seven, uh, Liz sacrifices herself. So, yeah. I mean, the She-Devils... They're all based on people you guys know. So uh, what was it like killing your friends? <laughs> well, not these pages were actually really hard. They weren't in the script. Originally, it was just Lauren who was going to die. Mm-hmm. And then... Scott wanted more blood. I wanted more blood. Yeah, I'm just all about the blood. It's fair. It's war. But um, yeah, well, yeah, yeah, I just want, I figured we could get away with that, but I thought it would be more impactful if we really showed the sacrifice these these people were yeah. making. I, originally, I also argued to have uh, Captain May go down with the ship also to like be on the bridge of the Tiger Moth, but mm. luckily that didn't happen. I think that, I mean, that was the right instinct to have, but I liked her being uh, off the ship and like doing stuff that way. Yeah, also yeah. having the pain of being a leader whose crew has yeah. died. Yes, yeah, so that all worked out much, much better. But yeah, these pages were extremely hard to draw, actually. Um, I, was, I was all full of emotions. Also, I don't recall seeing this. Uh, they, you know, they just get shot, but it, does, it seems very, very gory. I don't know if that's the work of the colorist or... Uh, what was the work of the colorist? It's yeah, way more intense than I'm used to seeing in Robo. Uh, yeah, the blood splatter. Well, some of it. So like in panel one on page six, he just put the spray in around yeah. where the... I usually don't do that just for the, the gore factor. I mean, it, it looks kind of, great. It makes the, it the does, loss yeah. a lot harder. Yeah. Uh, when, I was, when I first saw these pages, obviously they were black and white. And I was like, wow, that is a really intense scene. And then and we get the colors back so, yeah. and, it take, and it takes up that extra notch. And I was like, yeah, my first instinct was, do we want to go that far? Mm-hmm. But, you know, they're getting shot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's not uh, pleasant. And then like on this panel one, two, three, four, uh, where Liz is kind of looking over before she sees Ronnie, but she's looking over to the, the right there as we see it. I think I drew some of the globs of blood in, but yeah. Nick, Nick obviously expanded on that. and That's good. I, I was really happy with these pages. They were extremely difficult to draw. So, yeah, it wasn't fun killing my friends, but it was like it was really epic the way they went out. And page seven is... Liz especially. I love this page, yeah. Um, I showed the originals uh, to Liz. Uh, I saw her at New York Comic Con, and she just she loved it. So she thought that was a pretty awesome way to go out in a comic book that you're being uh, one of the characters in. She yeah, thought I mean, it was totally badass. You know, crippling the, the mothership is a good way to do it. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Like the A Wing guy in, in Jedi. Oh, yes. <laughs> Get to be that guy. And like well, the way Nick colored uh, that page, too. Yeah. Um, with all the reds and the um, and the arches. And there's like a, a bit of texture or distortion or something. There's just like color speckled everywhere in that scene. It just adds to the, the visual confusion and the texture on it. But it's all still working within a very tightly controlled color range. So it's not, it doesn't pop out weirdly at you. 
on page nine, the discussion between Robo and Takeshi heats up. Takeshi says that we're all dead, and then on page 10 goes on to explain, electrogravity is a poison. Its energy infects the body. The men of the Chokaitan are already dead. So that's a really, you know, you're reading it, and you take it for what it is, and you're like, okay, these guys are extra kamikaze now. But, <laughs> uh, but I mean, it, that line has a lot of weight. There's a lot of information there. I was wondering if you could elaborate on that. Uh, <laughs> yes, we wanted Takeshi to be more than just muhu ha ha. I'm a bad guy. We wanted to add an element of tragedy to him. Uh, you know, he's this really great pilot. Uh, he he feels like he missed out on the war to join this uh, elite uh, squadron, but he's kind of locked into uh, this role of avenging the the defeat of Japan, even though it's going to kill him to do it. And in fact, they've been exposed to all this, you know, electrogravity stuff, you know, over the years. Uh, and so they're just, I mean, there's nothing else. So he's kind of the muhu ha ha, I'm evil, but almost phoning it in, in, in a sense, if that makes any sense. Hmm. We also had to come up with a reason why this technology would not then perpetuate itself throughout Robo's world starting after right. this. Um, so it had to be this, this Achilles heel to it, yeah. Yeah, it, it did, um, aside from that line, all of the technology in a lot of ways does raise a lot of questions about Robo's world. If all this is possible, then why not? And uh, that's as good a thing as any. So I guess uh, electrogravity is radioactive? Sort of. I mean, that that's clearly the impression you get. Uh, Takeshi's just being a little bit poetic about it. There are or were actual attempts at uh, kind of combining the theories of electromagnetism with gravity and using that in, in propulsion. I think we spoke about that briefly in the previous yeah, uh, episode. I think so, yeah. so there's, you know, there's also the possibility that it's in, in Robo's world where it's, it's more plausible, clearly a working technology. You know, maybe there's this other element. It's doing this weird thing with space time. It's just screwing you up on a quantum level. I mean, who knows what's going on? I like that better than just radioactive. Yeah. Just won't want, cause you just, you know, <laughs> build lead around it. Problem solved. Right. <laughs> it, it takes so much lead that it can't fly anymore. Oh God. I love these pages. That's so rare that I actually like. Yes, it <laughs> is. Yeah. Well, Don't this, worry, yeah. This entire eight, issue eight. is uh, extremely strong, stands out amongst all the uh, Volume 7 issues. In both the line art and coloring as well, the uh, setting sun, just the warmth that the colors imply for that just really highlight all the uh, the action going on here. The, the palette's awesome. Nick and I were talking about that. It's going to be a real shame to, much as I now have to never draw these characters ever again, <laughs> even though I want to, Nick's sort of in a, in a similar boat in that the palette he was working from for this, a lot of it when they were on the islands and whatnot, he wanted to feel kind of heavy and a little oppressive because you're on these hot, stinky South mm -hmm. Pacific islands. And, and also the blues and the oranges and these, uh, when we're doing this, the, a lot of the aerial stuff. And there's some greens in there too. You know, that creates this visual footprint for this volume. And he, what he wants to do is then create a, a new palette per volume, basically, to sort of set the tone for the volume. So he's kind of in a similar boat where it's like, oh, I have to stop using those color combinations now. But yeah, I just love like things, you know, we've been tweaking the settings as we've gone from the first issue. And uh, it really definitely all finally comes together. Yeah. Uh, I think in this one just perfectly. Yeah, I like them all, but this is the strongest uh, yeah. as far as the marriage between the color and the lines. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I agree. I love a lot of the, the flat, like on page seven in the second panel. And it's, of course, I'm looking at a low res PDF, so I'm not going to be totally accurate. But 
there's just a lot of very they're very saturated but they're very um understated colors in that mm-hmm. panel so it's it's very red and it's very blue and it's very orangey brown but they're they've got enough gray in them that it doesn't jump out at you all strangely and I just love all the textures in the, in the skies here. Like most of these panels, uh, I would draw big cloud banks in, but that was it. They were kind of blank backgrounds mm-hmm. for the most part. Um, and then Nick just kind of peppered these awesome textures through there. I'm looking at page 11 right now. It's uh-huh. where they shoot the ion cannon. Yes. And uh, I'm, I'm reminded of one of my favorite reactions to She Devils as a whole. It was just somebody, I forget if it was on Twitter or Tumblr or something, but he was like, oh, it's so unrealistic. You know, the, it basically the thrust of his argument was that this was a dumb series because Japan didn't have the budget to pull off Chokaiten. Uh-huh. Which is true. You know, they didn't. But he framed it in such a way that it was like, uh, it was as if I didn't think of that. Like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, oh, I'll, I'll oh, show you. I wait, know a more minute, about wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. World War II history. Bri- but, Brian, robots can't what? talk. This whole yeah, series uh, what? is just a waste. We should just oh. give up on it. But what, what annoyed me was that, you know, you just take the next step of imagination and realize that they didn't have the budget because they blew the budget on Chokaiten. <laughs> Problem solved. <Dennis>. Perfect. <laughs> and that's why we're the ones making the cool comics and he's not. <laughs> Whoever that was. Owned. This is where it's, you start to get the sense that things are not okay for Lauren. You get page, up there all by herself. Yeah, page 12. Uh, Robo loses the jetpack, and then page 13, you realize that Lauren's going on a suicide run, and if she makes it out of it, it'll be a miracle, and mm-hmm. that's uh, that's not to be. Pacing is really good. Yeah, that was all Scott on, on this whole sequence. And, well, as we said, page 2 to page 20. <laughs> <laughs> and man, on page 14, I, I don't know what you guys got to do to integrate it into a shirt design, but uh, you brought a gun to a robot fight. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, although that's in the wrong panel, but that's okay. Is it? <laughs> that was supposed to I be the to, second I had panel. had to move stuff around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, because it's the second panel where he tries to shoot him to get him off. Uh, but that's okay. It works. It's still an awesome line. <laughs> that was a weird one. I was like, oh, now what? Robo is on him. <laughs> what yeah, have so I done? You go out of your way to, to design up a humanoid antagonist so that he can interact with it interestingly. But they're still in midair and Robo can't fly anymore. Right, small problem. So now they got a grapple, <laughs> but he's got a gun for an hand. So. Right. <laughs> it worked out. It all. Yeah, it out. looks cool. And Robo gets uh-huh. to, to spout that cool line. Yes. And yeah. they get a bit of back and forth about how Takeshi shot him down so many times. And <laughs> yeah, no, the banter. Robo does what Robo always does. Punches shit until it blows up. Yeah, like I love on page 15 is just like perfect Robo. Like the first panel, he's just like completely bo- blocking Takeshi's view with his crotch. From his, <laughs> completely covering his, uh, his little periscope eye, eye thing, whatever the hell. Which it was not intentional, but it just ended up working that way. And the, the tracers flying everywhere just sort of add to that. I had to do a bunch of, like most of these pages, when you look at the raw page, all around the artwork of these little pen drawings and me trying to figure out how to position people and make it work. Because there's actually nothing harder. Animation has this problem too. There's nothing Nothing harder than making two things physically interact with one another. What are you talking um, about, be- Scott? This is comic books. Rob Liefeld, very successful guy. He doesn't worry about that. <laughs> True. <laughs> Some of us think about it though and worry about it. Um, and you got a much better idea in the little in the little sketch I did that Robo's leg was sort of um, on the gun arm, pushing it away as he was clambering oh, up on him, but didn't quite cool. translate well into this. But the second panel where he's right before he punches, I just absolutely love the there's like a little bit of a forced perspective going on there. And I just really, really love it. Like everything Robo kind of that 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 pose of Robo winding up for a punch is actually strangely hard to pull off. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. With his arms, the way they work, but damn, I love that panel. It is a good panel. <laughs> it might, little, might be my favorite panel of their little duel. It's just great. Just the look on his face and just the kind mm-hmm. of action in his pose. It just all worked out really, really you well. Can, you can see Robo, you know, his eyes, even without pupils or anything, you can see exactly what he's looking at. You mm-hmm. know exactly what he's thinking, and then I don't know if the reader feels this or not, but I already know it's a bad idea, so I love it even more. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I love the idea of the little the the energy ball thing kind of uh, distorting before it blows in that little kind of pinch panel that I threw yeah, in there. Yeah, like he, like he pops whatever little bubble it is. Yeah, and it's funny. A lot of things like that end up happening. In the, I don't think this one specifically, but there are a lot of little panels like that throughout Volume 7, and, and I started in Volume 6 with this, where they're, they're actually a lot of times just fillers, where I had this great idea for a panel, but it didn't fit in the space I had. So I said, oh, well, it'd be a cool little thing to fill that hole on the page. And, oh, that'll work. It's uh, like your version of the Mignola aside. Yes, it is. That's but exactly of, what it is. Yeah. But instead of like this crumpling statue, it's a punch. Mm-hmm. Always, yeah, always fun. <laughs> There's fists everywhere. <laughs> I love the understated colors on the the big, I don't know, splash panel, whatever you want to call it, the the, the money like, panel of that page. Yeah, it just it really focuses your eye exactly where it needs to mm-hmm. needs to be. And then you slowly um, realize, hey, you know, the other <laughs> stuff happening in the background. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. For a lo- the original breakdown for this, as I wrote it, was um, kind of impossible. Well, it was too grim. That was the problem with it. Um, Page 14, and I'm looking at my notes here, page 14, 15, cutting back and forth between the tiger moth closing with the Hida and Robo grappling with Takeshi. The last three panels should go panel A, Robo punches through Takeshi's faceplate. Oh, that's um, right. <laughs> we had to talk you down from... from that's right. B, the tiger moth hits the Hida. C, Robo extracting his oil and blood-covered hand from Takeshi's neck. <laughs> Whoa! Yeah, as, as the Hida cracks in two, engulfing, engulfed in a huge explosion just over Robo's shoulder in the background. So oh. it's going to be this epic, like, blockbuster movie moment where it's, like, close on Robo's head, looking angry, with blood and oil on it. And then the ship just crumpling like, like the Hindenburg behind him. Now, imagine uh, yourself, you're me, you're sitting in the office, you're typing <laughs> away some happy little robo real science adventure or something, and you get an IM from Scott about the <laughs> blood and oil-covered fist of robo that it pulls out of the mangled skull of his enemy. <laughs> <laughs> what? Who is this? What's <laughs> uh, <laughs> And then Lauren dies. And then Lauren dies. 
Yeah. Well, you know, it's, it's funny because it's just that's just where I was at, man, when I got to that point. Because it's like, yeah. well, Lauren's dead, and, and, <laughs> and Liz and dead, Veron- and Lauren's gonna uh, die. And Liz and Veronica are horribly dead, and they died so awfully. And death obsession. <laughs> but a really, really powerful finale, and then then you get uh, two epilogues that follow. You know, real quick, I, I want to say I believe that there was dialogue for page sixteen, the big it explosion. Was. But it where, uh, where you know, Lauren finally hits, mm-hmm. and but then looking at the art, I was like, no, this this is so good, all on its own. You don't need you don't need a single word here. Yeah, and it, it totally it totally works in silence. All the actions there. There's no need for onomatopoeia. The sound effects invent themselves. Yeah, I, was, I really like that. The quietness on that. I, it's visually, I saw a lot of this volume happening in that kind of um, uh, that fake documentary uh, shaky cam thing that I, I guess was a Battlestar Galactica that start was that the first. They definitely popularized it. Yeah, they used to do this really cool thing in Battlestar where they'd like you know it'd be a wide shot and then the camera would zoom in and have to find what it was trying to zoom on and it was visually very very interesting and in my head. I started doing some stuff like that in volume six, but in this one, there was a lot of that in my head when I was, because because we had to pull so far back to get the scope of the action that was happening in this whole volume. Anytime there was a dogfight in the air, it just, uh, yeah, it seemed like a natural thing to do. Let's talk about these, uh, these fellows that Robo's chilling with. Oh, we've seen them before. Volume three, issue yep. three. Yep. Yeah. Issue three, volume three, issue three. These are the original uh, science agents from Tesladyne who originally were going to be a fairly large part of the story. Yeah, actually, that, that's the whole reason why we have this uh, bit with them in the epilogue, is that the very first draft of She-Devils, the mm-hmm. first couple pages, first pages maybe, yeah. maybe even up to three pages, mm-hmm. it was establishing them, you know, kind of talking with Robo about this test flight they were about to do and how the whole company was kind of hinging on it, and Robo going, ah, you're, you're crazy, it's going to be great. Then Robo takes off, and then uh, the, he intercepts the She-Devils, you know, halfway th- into it. And then we would yeah. have been cutting back and forth every now and then to... Uh, the science agents, you know, back in San Francisco, which is where Robo took off, you know, going, uh, you know, trying to find them, like organize, you know, a search party and so on. But as I wrote it and I, as I got to those parts where they had to come back in to make any sense, it was like, well, you know, this is just complicating things. We, we've got so much else already going on to keep cutting back and trying to justify the time that it takes to for them to get from one point of their search to the next. And, you know, w- what if they intercepted the Chokaitan on the way there? And so we just dropped all that. Yeah. Well, and it, that it, was the first of many, many massive rewrites. Yeah, and then in the very first issue, also, I'm always trying to get Brian to start telling the stories when it has already hit the fan, instead of doing that explanatory stuff. Um, mostly because I don't want to draw the people standing around talking. It's very boring. It's boring to look at. It's boring to draw. Uh, so. My glorious dialogue, Scott. <laughs> My exposition. <laughs> <laughs> but. Yeah, it, it wouldn't. I, I think the opening we ended up with was much better. It was more exciting. It should be visually interesting as well as narratively interesting. And if it's only narratively interesting, then I prefer to read a book where you can fit a whole lot more words. Anyway, I like cool the subtle happy. touch here uh, that Robo has no hand. <laughs> well, he punched the thing with that hand. <laughs> so, yeah, he's just got like a nub. <laughs> Poor little Robo nub. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I didn't know what to do with Robo after that because I was like, well, what would have happened if that happened? Um. <laughs> yeah, that, that was another part where we kind of, we both sort of wrote ourselves into a corner because, okay, you know, oh, the earthquake bomb, that's really dangerous and that's really bad. Okay, okay, and Robo blows it up, so now it's not a threat. Well, what does that right, actually do? Right, because originally it was supposed to fall into the ocean and just be lost. Yeah. 
and or then explode yeah. somewhere or in explode. the ocean. It's like it doesn't matter. There's no land. Right, right, right. But then there's the whole issue of tsunamis and whatnot. Yeah. But never mind. Yeah, and then I said instead of punching Takeshi through the face, I drew him punching the thing itself, and it was, and I drew that, and I'm like, wow, that's cool. And, and then I got here, and I was like, oh, hmm. I wonder what happened after that. <laughs> so that it's we'll never know. Um, I thought it would be cute just to have him in like people bandages and like a, you know the sling and the. <laughs> Good well, stuff. as as we backwards uh, justify, and as we so often do, and especially in this volume, <laughs> Robo is bandaged up for everyone else because it'd be horrifying to look at. Yeah, he's so human or a person like to see his innards just kind of hanging out, he would make everyone else really uncomfortable. His, his <laughs> unsightly right. eye socket. Yeah, you know, who, who's, you know, is he sparking? Are there wires? Oh, who knows? The world will never know. I, people were disturbed when I blew him up in volume six. Yeah. Volume like, six. People, it was rough, like man. That. It was really rough. Yeah, that was intense. People did not like that at all, especially some of the ladies who have a little crush on Robo. They were very yeah, – I got some angry emails. I'm not a huge fan of the last couple of pages with the She-Devils here just because there was some um, deadline issues, and I kind of rushed a bit faster than I wanted to, so I was not as happy with them as I was with other pages, but it works. That's just me being nitpicky and not having had time to do the – yeah, pretty much. And then we flashed to the, was it the 80s? I think it was. Yeah, just generically, you know, some point in the future. Yes. I was going to ask because the, uh, the age of Hazel is, uh, I assume that's Hazel. Is yes. That Hazel? Yeah. It is Hazel, yeah. Yeah, you know, it's, I think that was my own issue too because um, I always have a weird concept of how old World War II vets should be because my grandfather was a World War II vet, but he was in his 30s when he was serving so it always messes with my head about how old like why it's always strange to me that anyone's still alive from that point in time but, <laughs> but then i think about it, it's like oh yeah he was a good decade decade and a half than most of the people that you see on the history channel documentaries and whatever yeah this one was a lot of fun though this uh, i forget the original the original epilogue i think it was like three was it three pages four pages something like that yeah there was pages and there's a lot more family interaction stuff happening yeah that's um, right we, we spend a lot more time kind of establishing that uh, the granddaughter and, was like angry you know, teenager yeah being sullen about ugh, my stupid lame family i gotta hang out with ugh. yeah and then mm. she ends up in the attic and then i uh, i just made her just younger, to get away from them but i thought it'd be more fun if she was young and kind of well i didn't want to draw that so i was like oh how can i compress this <laughs> and i said oh what if she's already in the attic That'd be perfect. I, I think it's a it's a strong ending i like the um the weird uh symbolism of the uh, uh trunk she's firing the little plunger darts at that sort of looks mm -hmm. like it could be the uh it's got that that sort of cycloptic eye thing of uh takeshi's <laughs> ship or the evil computer for that matter <laughs> not that she would know <laughs> and then she gets the trunk with the the she double photo and it's great it's absolutely great i was wondering um the ball with the skull on it what is that ball with the skull on it in the trunk oh that's the jetpack it fit in there <laughs> they're not that big yeah <laughs> it's a big trunk well, that's trouble. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, there is that, yeah. <laughs> yeah, see, the page after this is the 11-year-old rocketing through the roof of the house and shattering, you know, several bones Covered in her body. Covered in blood and oil. It's a different blood, blood and oil. <laughs> <laughs> and then the house burns down and everyone dies. It's mm. horrible. So we thought we'd just end here. Instead. But that's how the technology is hidden forever, and so that covers it. <laughs> right. Yeah, five seconds later, this whole thing just exploded. <laughs> <laughs> this mushroom cloud coming out of the little 50s ranch house. <laughs> so uh, does this imply that the um, 
of the She-Devils, or at least some of them, actually stuck around the States at that point with a 50s ranch house and uh, the age of Hazel and the size of her family. Well, well I mean, my... that's, that's the fun thing there is it implies whatever the hell you want to imply. Um... Yeah, my, my interpretation is that on the previous page, uh, May says, you know, we'll do whatever the hell we like. So, you know, that means whatever, like Scott was saying, they just did whatever. Hazel, her path in life was to, you know, raise a family. Maybe was... others did, maybe they didn't. Yeah, uh... I, I was in the trunk going to put like some like diplomas and PhDs and some patents and stuff. And then I was just like, forget it. <laughs> it's, it's a trunk full of junk. And yeah, it's just uh, they went on to do whatever they went on to do. I don't think we actually sat down and figured out what they went on yeah. to do, though. For me, it, it was an important to make one of them, you know, have a family because mm-hmm. we've already established, you know, that these are the she-devils and they are tough ladies and they do whatever the hell they want. But we also didn't want to invalidate the idea of, well, you know, it's just dumb and lame to have a family. Well, no, we, we're all part of pretty cool families. So, you know, let's incorporate that into the she-devils as well. Yeah, I think it's a it's a very strong end to a, a great volume and a, a very very intense issue that really it needed something like this to bookend it. And uh, I've gotten reports of people crying at this issue. <laughs> the, the the few people that were able to download it before they accidentally took it off of uh, when it got released too early. Well, good. They should. Damn it! I cried when I made it. I know. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. God, those pages with Lizard Roddy just killed me. <laughs> This is like all moping around the house and like, I need to eat ice cream. (laughs) (laughs) He's not joking. (laughs) Well, you guys may be wondering what's happening to Atomic Robo Nuts and Bolts because volume eight of Atomic Robo doesn't come out till May of 2013. Well, glad you asked. We are going to be continuing our monthly release schedule and we're going to be going back to the beginning. As we suggested that we might in the past, we decided to do it. So um, next month, look forward to Atomic Robo... Volume one. Uh, we're not sure if we're going to do it issue by issue yet or what. Maybe we'll do all all the trade all at once. We'll see what happens. We'll see how many episodes we need to break it into. But uh, we're just, we're doing volume one, and also in May is the free comic book day issue. And earlier in March 2013 is the second volume of Atomic Robo Real Science Adventures. Hell yeah! You can get volume one of Real Science Adventures right now. Collected. Do it. Yeah. So do it. Follow links to where you can pick up all kinds of Robo stuff if you need to fill in your collection on this episode's page or any of the Atomic Robo pages. And, of course, atomic-robo.com is your place to go for all Brian and Scott's most excellent rantings. Uh, I guess aside from that release schedule, that that is all the, the Robo news. If you want to get any Robo merch, you know where to get it. Right again, this episode's page, skate decks, T-shirts, and all that jazz. Before we go, we asked listeners, fans of Robo, to write in and ask Scott and Brian any questions that they might have about Volume 7. And we got some. Uh, we got a few from uh, Nerdy Show Forum member Muckraker. He wants to know, what are some near misses, uh, mistakes, or choices that you guys almost made, either in production or the Robo property in general, that uh, didn't work, that you're glad didn't happen? Well, the the blood in, in oil is mine. <laughs> oh, you mean just this issue, yeah. Yeah. Um, not including the, the science agents as a major part of the narrative. In fact, I remember at one point we were talking about Mac, the uh, the angry mm-hmm. kind of gung ho guy, going along with Robo, being to have it be like his mechanic on the scene, and then him yeah, having yeah. some sort of a romantic relationship with one of one of the uh, for the She Devils. Remember that? Yeah. So there's always there's always like weird tangential stories that sound like they'd be good stories, but then there you realize they're not central to what you're trying to do, um, and because he, it, you know we do have a limited amount of space to do what we're doing, so we have to really whittle things down to their absolute essentials yeah which i on the one hand i i love that we do that because we really do have six issue stories and then we do them in five Mm -hmm. but there's always a moment 
at least one in every single trade, if not every single issue where it's like, oh, I really wish we had another just four pages per issue or just a whole other issue to flesh out some stuff. Uh, volume five for me was the worst for that. Oh, yeah. Uh, because we compressed so much of uh, Helen and, and Jack and their relationships, A, with each other and B, with Robo. Yeah, we were, oh, we were really in no choice. It was still, uh, that was a packed volume. Yeah, there was a lot going on. But like, hey, there we was... just get to do a whole volume with him later on. Hey, hey. That is true. That is true. Yeah, I'm looking forward to doing that one. That'll be a lot of fun. I think another uh, near mistake that we did uh, was that the original World War II Sparrow was written as a guy. Well, yeah, because that was an adaptation of one of the characters I would, was yeah. never, ever going to get around to making a comic book with, yeah. And at the last minute, Scott was like, what if it's a lady? Yes, and why and was that? The right decision. At that point, when we started doing Robo, while we... Remember, there were, there, we, had a, we were really kind of mad at each other, or just in general, that there were so few dominant lady roles in first the first volume, and then... In World War Two, yeah, and the the female action scientist in Volume One got a really good response, and it was interesting because when we started doing Robo, we were thinking, here's all these things we don't like the gratuitous shots of ladies' butts and stuff like that in superhero comics, or you know, simply p- tracing porn if you're Greg Land. <laughs> She's still doing, by the way. <laughs> oh, I know. I can't read Iron Man because of it. I can't look at anything he does <laughs> without feeling very, very dirty. I really want to read Iron Man. He screwed mm. up for me. Well, did he trace gay porn for Tony Stark? Because then that would at least level the playing field. Maybe. And and I think I may have just come up with the greatest new Tumblr ever. So <laughs> 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 Take that, Hawkeye Initiative. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> so while we, we didn't like that stuff, we hadn't actually taken the next logical step in our thinking and said, well, we should have some you know, women characters in the book. Because really it was just all about Robo, and he interacted with whoever he interacted with. But uh, Lang and Ada, the action scientists from Volume 1, got really great responses. And then we said, oh, great, how do we carry through with this? And that was when the Sparrow became uh, a lady. Uh, and I think it worked out cooler, because like, the, the original backstory of the Sparrow was pretty standard pulp guy. And then we just decided that he got crippled by uh, Otto. And so there's a whole, there's a whole deep history between the Sparrow from the comics, her brother that you've never met, and uh, Otto Skorzeny, and it just it never had a chance to come out in the... Because, again, it was secondary to what we were doing. Yeah, you get, like, there's a couple lines uh, in, like, issue three or four of that series mm-hmm. where Otto's got the Sparrow at gunpoint, and they just allude uh, about the brother. Yes, that's right, that's right. So it would, would be a lot of fun to go back to that at some point. Robo with uh, jet boots, that would have been terrible. <laughs> uh, Muckraker's got a couple other questions. Uh, one of them is pretty interesting. It's hypothetical. If you guys were to take a temporary break from Robo, but wanted the comic to continue, what writers and artists would you most be comfortable with in your stead? And this is, of course, not a real science adventure, but actual Robo. I love real science adventure, but I'm never comfortable with anyone else drawing Robo, to be perfectly honest with you. Uh, it's always a little bit of like, oh, they're doing my thing. But it's also really <laughs> it's cool. Baby. Yeah, it's also really cool to see them interpreting my thing. So that's awesome. It's always mixed feelings on my part. No one else is allowed to write it, though, as we've learned. So early on, early you, on. You learned that? How did you learn I learned that? that? By letting someone else write a robo story or two. Uh, in the B-side stories in volume one, I'm pretty sure Christian Ward wrote basically wrote the story he did or, or he, he plotted it. He did it and then you wrote script on top yeah. of it. But that, that was a little bit easier because he, he came at me with this idea. And, then, and since the whole plot of his thing takes place like in Robo's cyborg mind. Right. You know, whatever. All the rules. Sure, sure. But where it really got stupid um, was Josh Ross did uh, one of the B-side stories for us and then wanted to do another. 
and Brian was busy with stuff. It was difficult to get B-side scripts out of him anyway because, I don't know, writing four-page stories is hard or something. And so finally, it's just in frustration. I was just like, you know, whatever. Just You have a basic idea of what you want to do. Just go do it. And his brother was also a big fan. He's like, you know, we do comics together. Could we write it? And I was like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> um, and <laughs> what could go wrong? Well, it was a B story. What could go wrong? Yeah, and, yeah. and I knew basically what the story was. But Brian was not part of any of these conversations. And so suddenly there's a giant robot in Korea. And this is when Brian and I had to have a big, like, you know, sit down adult <laughs> conversation about. Well, part of what happened, because I do remember this beginning and there was an email chain. And then just suddenly I stopped getting emails and I was like, all right, whatever. You know, they'll, <laughs> they'll get back to me whenever they're ready to get started. The next time I hear anything about it, it's like it's one done. page. It's like, yes, yeah, the third page or fourth page of art. And I'm like, what's going on with this giant robot? <laughs> so what? apparently, Cap, giant robots do not exist in our universe, which does sort of make sense. And I think, but was that also like the catalyst for what started all the jokes about the square cube law? I mean, it started with the giant ants, but. No, yeah, I mean, that's just, I mean, um, giant just, monsters are fun. and, and Yeah. Impossible. Yeah. And then this, the story was fine. Uh, Brian ended up rescripting some of it. Just, just It's all very blurry. Justify, yeah. Justify where this giant robot came from, why there are no more after it. I mean, right. it's it's a good four-page story. I mean, art's great. The the basic idea that they had is great. Right. I'm not knocking these guys. They just no, did no, not no. really. It did not really gel with the established Robo uh, continuum. Yes. That was the only problem. And yeah, it was, no, it was this was really early on, so it was even oh, hard. Sure. It was oh, yeah, difficult yeah. to convey that to begin with. Absolutely. Like people, like especially when we were first starting, you know, and people were coming at us with story ideas and oh, I want to oh, do this I and that, know. and I'm like, well, okay, that's great and all, you know, seriously. But what you don't understand is that there's not just these six issues, just not these six stories from Robo's first volume. There's so much more implied, so much more that we have done and have locked down just mentally. And there's so many reasons. You know, it's not just random chance and, and whatever. Yeah. There's specific choices at work here, and you'll see them play out eventually. So I, I understand your idea, and it's a cool idea, and I would like to see that idea. But not with Robo because it just doesn't fit. Because we, you know, in Volume Thirteen, it, it, it was you know, <laughs> and just people just don't tend to think like oh, that. That anyone goes that far, I guess. Right. Well, a lot of like long-running comics, you know, they had no plan. They just yeah. happened. I think that's the last time we really had any kind of an argument about Robo, about like you know what's possible in his world, what's not, what's what's the. Because I, I, well, I, I didn't, I still at the time didn't, I didn't see what the big deal was. Like whatever, big robot. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Looks cool. Yeah, and I did. I was looking at it from a purely visual point of view and all that jazz too. So, but I think uh, I think that was the last time we ever had a fight about Robo. <laughs> I think if we couldn't do it, I think it would be. I think I'd rather just see us not do it. That's um, <laughs> fair enough. Yeah. Otherwise, you uh, can just go the laundry list of authors and yeah, writers I, I, that I, I you could, respect. But you know. Exactly. Yeah. But then it would take us so long to explain all this stuff to them. Anyway, the, with, the, with the artists, it's a lot easier. It's like here's what Robo looks like. Done. <laughs> like, you, with a pen, can do this job. <laughs> right. <laughs> As we, month, that's what I want. <laughs> <laughs> Our last question comes from Lowlife43 on Twitter, who asks, How do you guys feel you've improved as a writer and as an artist over the years with Robo? I'm a much better writer now. Brian still can't draw, though. Yeah, I do well <laughs> now in, in actual uh, story arcs instead of just single issues because I can bullshit my way through you know 22 pages of action and a couple gags and explosions and call it a story. But actually making a story art with a A story and a B story and rising action and falling action. I finally, uh, after five volumes, figured out how to do that. Well, volume five was the first time you really yeah. 
really well there's a reason why volume five is the first time we did it because i couldn't do it before (laughs) (laughs) i i remember when you figured all this out like he like he texted me one day and he's like these outlines are amazing he's like i have all this free time now he's like it's all like work like i don't have to rewrite the same page nine times on a technical level i've just gotten better at doing everything through practice and repetition i think my storytelling has gotten a lot better like the visual storytelling i guess the, the biggest change overall is in the first two volumes of robo i was heavily referencing other people's work because i didn't understand how to pull off a panel or express something or whatever and now i feel like i've got like I've, I've, it took me that long just to get the basic tools of visual storytelling to understand them and now I'm just kind of running with it. So I know I'm no longer referencing other people like I did early on. Now I'm just kind of exploring my own abilities and, and changing things as I go to see how they work. And I'm trying to simplify things more. My process has changed quite a bit because I used to, I would, I would thumbnail out the entire issue and then I would pencil the entire issue and then I would ink the entire issue. And man, is that tedious. I'm at a point now where kind of like Brian doing the outlines where I do enough work ahead of time that I don't have to do all that because I can kind of go one page at a time and not screw myself over because I've worked out all the hard stuff ahead of time. Like the, you know, what is the crazy ray gun going to look like? What's this weird monster going to look like? Things like that I would never work out before. Uh, first couple comics I ever did were just like, you know, no idea what I was doing from page to page. There's definitely a lot of uh, like faking it till we made it. And now I think I also, I think I've learned from Brian, I can construct a story. Um, I can't write dialogue, but I can construct a story that has a beginning, a middle, and an end. So that's kind of a neat thing. Just working with him, that part, that rubs off and translates into the art. If you guys have any other questions for Brian and Scott, especially if it pertains to Volume 1, which is going to be the next thing we cover on Nuts and Bolts, then uh, you should totally uh, either hit us up on the uh, Nuts and Bolts Ask Brian and Scott page on the Nerdy Show forums or tweet at us, hashtag AskRobo. So thanks for joining us, guys. If you liked what you heard, please uh, support Nerdy Show and the Nerdy Show Network. Nuts and Bolts is a part of the Nerdy Show Network. It is a listener-supported podcast, and we couldn't exist and uh, sustain all these amazing programs without your help. If you go to nerdyshow.com, you'll be able to see not only what awesome perks you'll get in the mail, because any donation gets you perks sent to your email, all kinds of cool extra audio and, and illustrations and so on for you to enjoy. We add new stuff every single month. And uh, chances are we'll also have some kind of awesome support drive going on and even the opportunity for you to choose what we'll discuss for a 15 to 30 minute episode. So remember, we'll be back next month with more Atomic Robo Nuts and Bolts. Bye, I'm Cap. I'm Brian. I'm still Scott. Nuts and Bolts. Come on, fly with me, we'll fly, we'll fly away. Come fly with me, we'll float down to Peru. In Lava Land, there's a one-man band, and he'll toot his flute for you. Come on, fly with me. We'll take off in the blue. Atomic Robo Nuts and Bolts is brought to you by Nerdy Show. If you somehow enjoyed what you've heard, you can show your support by telling a friend or going to nerdyshow.com and clicking the support button. Even a small contribution gets you cool nerdy perks, possibly crystals, and allows you to take part in our monthly support drive contests. For more episodes of Atomic Robo Nuts and Bolts, videos, contests, and other nerdy programming, visit nerdyshow.com. Subscribe to all the Nerdy Show Network's latest episodes via the iTunes Store, and remember to follow us on Facebook, Tumblr, and Twitter at Nerdy Show. I'm Dr. Dinosaur. 
for Atomic Robo. News, go to atomic-robo.com. A highly inefficient URL. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.